Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we want you to take them and turn to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke 22. We are concluding uh, over the next couple of weeks, a year and a half uh, series, overall series. It's called the Jesus Series. We broke that down into a number of the seasons of the life of Jesus. This is the season of passion where Jesus is uh, demonstrating his incredible love for us and God is demonstrating his love through Christ for us by this, this final week where Jesus is uh, going through the trials, eventually ending up at the cross. So we're going to conclude the Gospel of Luke on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, April 1st. Luke 24 is the resurrection. So next week we're looking at Luke 23, which is the crucifixion. So we'll look at that together. Uh, we will be doing the cross service. I want to remind you of that. Many of you have been to the cross service before when we've done it on Friday night, Good Friday. We decide to do this on Sunday morning, and so we have connection hour as normal next week, and then the 11 o'clock service will be the only service we have uh, of the two that we normally have. Traditional service at 8.30 will be coming in here at 11, and of course, you'll be here at 11. And I'll actually walk in with the cross. We'll have uh, the full cross service where I chop the cross while I'm preaching uh, the message of the cross. This time, it'll be out of Luke 23. This is a prime time to invite people to come because it's very unusual. The cross is about 20 foot tall. Uh, when the cross beam is cut, it's uh, 13 foot tall, seven foot cross beam. Weighs about 700 pounds. It's kind of unusual that uh, this would happen, that most people don't do these kinds of services. So it's a unique thing. I want you to reach out to somebody and, uh, and bring them next week. Uh, we're doing it just once instead of several times for a lot of reasons, but one is we want to have time for everyone to worship together, uh, and another is it would just wear me out to do it two or three times on Sunday morning. This last week, uh, Andy and I were in a meeting, and uh, Andy, our worship leader, said, are you going to walk in from the back with the cross beam the way you've done in the past? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to. And he paused, and he goes, you know, you're not getting any younger. And uh, after two minutes of uh, silence uh, in the room, I finally responded to him. He's right. And uh, truth is, I might start gasping for air. It's probably not a heart attack. I'm not sure, but it's probably not a heart attack. But it is one of those things that I, I have uh, a lot of passion about because uh, the impact of the cross on people is profound. I would say more people have come to faith during the cross service than any other single kind of service that we have every year. I want to really encourage you to reach out to the one you're loving on, the one you're praying for, and invite them to come. Let's stand together as we read the Word of God today, beginning in chapter 22. The testimony of Jesus is the name of the message. We're looking at the trials and the testimony that comes out of the trial of our Lord, our Savior Jesus. In verse 24, we, we, uh, verse 54 rather, of Luke 22, we see them coming out of the Last Supper and out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And just to briefly recap, it says in verse 54, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. Now, if you kept reading down that text, you would see Peter denying Christ three times, which all of us probably say we would never do that. But Peter was a passionate follower of Christ, and this is a treacherous hour. This is a difficult time. Uh, so he denies Jesus three times, and we pick it up then in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming, blaspheming or speaking evil of him. 
When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled and both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And with that, they began to put him on trial to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this protracted, detailed account of the trials. And Father, I know that there are places there for us to see some of the detail of what Jesus walked through. And they're there also to demonstrate to us the character of this one that we follow today. I ask you to illuminate the scripture for us today in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Now we're on Wednesday night, Thursday, right now, Passion Week. Jesus is going to go through the trial. Eventually on Friday, he'll be crucified. Sunday, he'll rise again. We know the story. But these trials began to reveal the character of Jesus. In general, we know, the Bible teaches this, by the way, that trials reveal character. The trials you go through in your life reveal the character of your life. When you're pressed, when things are happening all around you to crush you and to push you from all sides, then your character comes out. You're a good character or you're bad. So trials reveal what's inside of a person. And as Jesus goes through these trials, there's a reason that we have all these accounts of his trials. There's a reason why we have this detail. And the reason that we have this detail is so that we can see who this man really is. And I want you to go back with me and reestablish your belief in who Jesus is today. Everything about your spiritual life depends on this question, who do you say Jesus is? And today, that question is going to be posed to you, and we're going to ask you where you stand in regard to Jesus. And these trials illuminate who this man is. There are four testimonies that come out of this trial that I want to speak to you about today. The first one is the testimony of his influence. Why is Jesus the object of hatred and vengeance on the part of the religious leaders. In verse 66, the Bible says, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chambers. They're, they're dragging him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. They're putting him in a room with a number of other people that are around. There are people flowing outside that room and on the outside, and they're putting him on trial. And one of the reasons that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much was because of how profound of an influence he had on people. His teaching and his miracles enormously influenced the people of that day. The crowds began to move away from following organized religion. They began to follow Jesus. It began back with John the Baptist when many of the people who followed Judaism were going out into the wilderness to be baptized by this man who was a prophet, who was a forerunner, of the Messiah. And so we've got this influential man, Jesus, and the religious leaders hate him because of this. I want you to see the garden scene for just a moment at his betrayal. In verse 47, we go back and see that this group of people descended upon Jesus, followed by Judas. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them, and they approached Jesus to kiss him. We got this idea that it's Judas coming and 
just individually kissing Jesus on the cheek and then there are a few people around to take him away. But that's not at all what it looks like. In fact, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of this event right here, they share all kinds of details. Yes, it was Judas that came first, but behind him were the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders. And in their hands were lanterns, because it was still night, and swords and clubs. This was a murderous group of people who had what we might call a sanguinary intent, a bloody bloodthirsty intent. They are out to take the life of Jesus. And one needs to wonder why is all that. John's account says there's also a cohort of soldiers. So they have now mobilized the Roman military. A cohort of soldiers is about 600 total. There are six centurions that lead six groups of 100. So these are the best warriors armed to the hilt. All that Rome can offer is there in that garden that day. So you have the chief priest following Judas who betrays Jesus with a kiss. You have all these religious leaders in the behind as though they are enforcing all these actions is that Roman cohort. Now they've seen the life of Jesus. They know he's supernatural. They know he can, he can do incredible things, supernatural things, calm the seas. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. He can do all these things and they're terrified that he might respond to them in a supernatural way. So they come with all the manpower possible because of his enormous influence with people. You know why Jesus was so popular? You know why Jesus was so hated by the religious leaders and so loved by the crowds? Let me point out some things that Scripture tells us. First of all, Jesus confronted empty religion. He wasted no time in confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that denied the reality of the supernatural he wasted no time in cutting down their religious systems. And people love that. Secondly, he always confronted the hypocrite. The one who said one thing on the outside and on the inside was someone entirely different. The whitewashed cups, as he called the Pharisees. And the people loved the fact that Jesus was calling out what they knew was true. That this religion didn't really make them better people at all. It just allowed them to build a structure that they put the oppression on everyone. So he called out hypocrisy. Thirdly, he was influential because he loved and he accepted and he forgave sinners. Now, of all the reasons to love Jesus, that's my number one reason for loving Jesus because he loved and accepted and forgave me. And he loves and accepts and forgives you. And the people of that day, the, the, uh, the woman caught in adultery, the, uh, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, who was up in a tree, but a thief, all those people adored Jesus because he saw who they were. He saw through their lives. He loved them anyway. He accepted them and he forgave them and he came to bring that kind of connection. But the most important reason that these leaders hated Jesus is because he declared that he was the Son of God. And that leads us to the next illumination or the next testimony and that is the testimony of his identity. If you get down to verse 70, this is really the heart of why Jesus was crucified, the heart of why the religious leaders hated him so badly, why all the soldiers were there that day, verse 70. And they all said, are you the son of God? Notice the definite article, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And you could almost see the ball begin to roll right there, right then. The ball begins to roll down the hill. Everything snowballs from that moment forward. Consider the gravity 
of that question. For just a moment, let me ask you to think through and evaluate who you know Jesus to be today. Because there is a perception of Jesus that would be erroneous and wrong and not founded on Scripture or his testimony. And if you have this certain kind of perception of Jesus, you do not have a relationship with him. There is another understanding of Jesus that is God revealed. And if you have that God revealed understanding of who Jesus is, then you are a child of God. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do I, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response was to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't hear this in the grapevine. My father in heaven has told you who I am and you know who I am. You need today to know who Jesus is. And this trial helps us understand. Are you the son of God? The Son of God is a key name here. And when Jesus is admitting and confessing that he is the Son of God, he is not saying that he is a product of the mating of God the Father and Mary somehow, but that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and was God manifest in human form. We all know the story of the virgin birth. We celebrated that as we started the book of Luke, and we see this amazing experience where the Holy Spirit hovers over Mary, and that which was conceived in her was the child of God. Not only did Jesus say, I'm the Son of God, but by saying that, he says, I am of God. I am not of man. I am not like you. I am different from you in that I am fully human, but I'm also fully divine. And it was only because Jesus was fully human that he could identify with us, only that he was fully divine that he could live this sinful perfect life to prepare him for the cross and so Jesus said to them yes I am the son of God he claimed to be of God you know each of the gospels starts with a little bit of a of a uh, of a background to the ancestors of the one being born and you find this in Matthew you find this in in Luke not so much in Mark but in John you find a very different thing instead of talking about Jesus lineage when it comes to Mary or Joseph it speaks of his spiritual background, his spiritual lineage. Where did Jesus come from spiritually? And John says this, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he says in verse 14. In verse 2 of John 1, he says, he was in the beginning with God. In other words, John clarifies that Jesus had no beginning or the end. He was there in the beginning of all beginnings. He is the architect. He's the divine word. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. So John gives the spiritual background to Jesus, and Jesus clarified that all through his ministry. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 58, when the Pharisees confronted Jesus, and they asked about how he knew anything about Abraham, and he said to them, before Abraham was, I am, referring to his timeless, eternal state. So Jesus is not just a man. He is God in the flesh. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, says he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The author of Hebrews says this Jesus is the exact representation of God. If you want to know who God is, look at the life of Jesus, look at the words of Jesus, look at the character of Jesus. That's who God is. So Jesus is saying to these people on that day of trial, I am the Son of of God. And his answer was not only, yes, I am the Son of God, but yes, I am. 
Now, for those there that day, I am represented something more than simply him affirming that he was the son of God. Everything that enraged these people that day was his constant use of the word, I am. Now, the Israelites knew, the Jewish people knew, the story of the Exodus, and so do you. And you remember in the Exodus, God raised up Moses to go back to deliver the people from Egyptian bondage. And Moses was afraid. He was afraid that Pharaoh would not accept his demands or accept his testimony to set the people free. And so he said, who should I say sent me? And God himself says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am sent you. I am the one who exists from all time, eternity past and eternity future. And so this was an incredibly important phrase to the Jewish people that day. And for Jesus to say, yes, I am the son of God, but yes, I am was particularly aggravating to them. But this is just what Jesus taught all through his ministry. When you read the book of John, you see the I am statements of John. By the way, if you have conversations with people about the gospel and they don't know who Jesus is or don't understand who he is or who he claims to be, it's really important for you to get them into the book of John. Let them read the gospel of John. As they read the gospel of John, they see every claim Jesus made about himself. And there you find a number of I am statements that Jesus made that these Pharisees were aware of. So when Jesus says at this trial, yes, I am, all that comes back to their ears and their minds. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door that you must enter through. In John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. If any man dies, though he be dead, yet he lives because of me. In John 14, 6, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. All those statements of Jesus were echoing around in the minds of these Pharisees and these religious leaders. They thought we must put him to death. He thinks he's God. He actually does. You know, today, one of the reasons that people won't accept Jesus is because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man on earth, no man at all, no man, no woman, no child comes to the Father except through me. People say, well, religion is exclusive. You leave people out. Jesus was very inclusive. He died for all. He interacted with all. He loved all. But he only gave us one way to be saved, one way to be forgiven, one way to have eternal life. At this point, when we look at the trial, I'm annoyed and amazed by a couple of things. I am astounded that these religious leaders missed the Messiah. They had all the prophecies. They had all the details. They had all the timeline. And the prophecy was being fulfilled in front of their very eyes. They were in the Old Testament. They read what you and I can read today. And we see the connection, but they did not. They ignored the miracles. They ignored the I am statements of God, uh, of Jesus. And so we know this. We know that these religious leaders created God in their own image. They said, if this is who God is, we will not follow him. But I'm also equally amazed that we don't recognize him today for who he says he is. I'm amazed that there are whole groups of people that miss what he said about himself, the beliefs of cults and others who are far from Jesus. 
One cult says that Jesus was merely a human who grew into Godhood, who got his own planet. And then you and I, if we grow well, we can also reach Godhood and have our own planet. All I've got to say is, if that's planet Earth, I don't want it. Another one says, another cult says that Jesus was a half-brother of Lucifer. Islam says that Jesus is merely a prophet or a teacher, but he cannot be the son of God, they say. Hindu believes that he is a great teacher. He had many moral statements that were good, but he is in no way the God of all gods or the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when they say that, they miss the revelation of the Old Testament, the prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ, and his words himself. You cannot say Jesus is a good teacher and say he was also not the Son of God. You cannot say he was a good prophet and not all also believe that he is God in the flesh. You must make up your mind who Jesus is. And this testimony in this trial made clear that he literally is the Son of God. The third testimony is the testimony of his character. Look in chapter 23. The Bible says the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt on this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So Pilate, who did not really want to give Jesus a trial, heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. So he moved him to another place where Herod was in town, who was over the area of Galilee. Verse 8, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Pilate and Herod had become friends with one another that very day. For before, they had been enemies of each other, and now you can see they're back friends again. Now Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. Behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him to you. Now, the reason I read all this is so you can see the going back and forth of the trials and the testimony of his character that comes through at the end of the trial with, Parrot, with uh, Pilate, with Herod, and then back to Pilate again is this. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Everything in these trials is designed to show us that Jesus was not put to death for political reasons. He was not put to death for legal reasons. He was not put to death for lawful reasons. He was not put to death for moral reasons. Jesus was not crucified for crimes against humanity. He was impeccable in his character. They could find no wrong thing in him. He was blameless and without spot. And that was demonstrated through the trials and through the accusations. 
That's why Hebrews says we do not have a high priest that can't sympathize with us. Everything you've ever gone through, every unfair trial, every unfair judgment that's been cast against you, every, every difficulty you've gone through where people falsely accuse you, where people say all kinds of vile things about you, Jesus has gone through those and more. He's identifying with everything we could possibly have gone through in life because he's going to be your shepherd. He's going to be your savior. He's going to be the one that carries that weight for you. So he's tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. Paul writes back about the cross and says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And this allows Peter to stand up after Pentecost, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and after Pentecost and preach this message. Listen to what he preaches in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This was God's plan for a Savior to die on the cross to pay for sins. It was your sin that nailed him there. Nothing he did deserved death. All declare that. Or in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, where Peter again is preaching. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered, and you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. I want you to see this today within this trial. Jesus' character is impeccable, sinless, perfect, blameless in every way. It was the only way he could die for our sins if as he himself, his own character was absolutely pure. Now, as you let those accusations sink in and that testimony rise up, I want you to know that his whole life, his whole purpose, his whole direction was lived for you for that moment at the cross. I can't read this text. I can't read what Peter preached in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and not say, Jesus died because of my sin. He wasn't put to death for any judicial reason. He wasn't put to death for any legal reason. He wasn't put to death for any other reason other than for the sins of mankind. He, by the predetermined plan of God, died for you. I want you to let that sink in for just a minute. What kind of love is this? Someone would love you enough to live the perfect life so he could be the perfect sacrifice at the perfect moment in history so that you could have perfect righteousness, which you could never have yourself. For you, for me, for us, for everyone who would come to faith in this man. That's why we put our faith in this man. And finally, there's the testimony of his character. When you get down to verse 1 of chapter 23, you see... Not only that Herod sees no guilt in him, but also you see the destiny of Jesus, the testimony of his destiny beginning in verse 17. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Verse 18, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. For he was the one who was thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. So this is no small criminal. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed him again, but they kept on calling out saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? 
What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Then he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. That is, he delivered him to the cross. Something powerful unfolding here. The story of Barabbas is an interesting story. But the story of the sacrifice of Jesus next to the release of Barabbas is even more intriguing. You see, on the Day of Atonement in Old Testament, the worship of God that the Jews practiced, there was, a, there was a moment when the high priest, having cleansed himself and walked into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for the people's sin, he only did this once a year, so the Day of Atonement was huge. But he would have two goats, and those two goats had to be perfect goats, as goats can be. They had to be without blemish. They couldn't be marked up. They couldn't be unhealthy in any way. They had to be an acceptable sacrifice. And the principle behind it was the innocent must lay, be slayed for the guilty. That's exactly how the blood atonement worked all through the Old Testament to the day of Christ. And so they would cast a lot for these two goats, and the high priest would see which lot fell on which goat. And the goat that was determined to be the sacrifice was then slain. And he was slain, his blood was sprinkled on the altar, and the symbolism of all this is innocent blood shed for guilty. And that blood atoned for the sins of the people. But for the other goat, the, the priest would take his hands and lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess all the sins of Israel upon that goat and turn it loose. And that goat was said to have carried the sins of Israel out into the wilderness as far as it could go. And it would actually be led out to the point of the wilderness and released. It was called a scapegoat, but we get our word scapegoat. The interesting thing about these two goats is that they had to be, in other words, totally identical. And the principle is two presented that are identical. One dies and the lot is cast and the other set free. And before Jesus is sacrificed, what happens? Two men are presented. They're identical in some ways in that they're both fully human. Jesus, of course, was fully human and fully divine. Barabbas, on the other hand, was fully human and fully criminal. He was accused of insurrection, of rebellion. He was there for a legal reason. He was there for a judicial reason. He was there because he also murdered someone. So here's a criminal. In the worst-case scenario, this man needed to die. Pilate was saying, why don't you choose one of these two to release? You have a tradition. I'll release one of them. And the people chose Barabbas. Over and over they shouted for Barabbas to be set free and for Jesus to be crucified. Recently I read an article written by Jonathan Cain who wrote about the Day of Atonement. He said the interesting thing about these two men, Jesus and Barabbas, is this similarity. He said Jesus is the Messiah and as we saw in that trial, called himself the Son of God or the Son of the Father. So he affirmed that he was the son of God, and that was a real pinnacle of the trial at that moment. Barabbas, on the other hand, is obviously a criminal, but his name was similar to what Jesus said he was. The word Barabbas is a combination of two words in the original language, bar, which means son, and Abba, which means father. So the son of God, who was the son of the heavenly father, and a man named son of the father were presented in front of the people. Jesus was chosen to make the sacrifice. Barabbas was set free as the guilty one who was released. 
What a picture that had to be to those Pharisees, those scribes. What a picture for us today. That this sacrifice has been fulfilled in every way. He was rejected for us. He was condemned for us. He was sacrificed for us. Verse 25 says, he released the man they were asking for, but delivered Jesus to their will, which was to put him to death. And so by the predetermined plan of God, Jesus died for our sins. You know why I follow Jesus today? You know why I gather on the first day of the week with others to worship? You know why I get out on my knees and pray every day when I open the word of God? Do you know why I do those things? I don't do those things because it's convenient. I don't do those things because we have the best kind of worship or the best kind of preaching. I don't do those things because all of our classes are perfect or our church is perfect. I don't do those things because Christianity is cool because in many ways it's not. I don't follow Jesus for all those reasons. I follow Jesus because he was a sinless son of God, because he was the ultimate sacrifice for my sin. These disciples were willing to die, die for the testimony of Christ. You and I ought to live for him and die for him because the testimony of these trials show us he was in fact who he said he was. You will never doubt that. You will never regret that. You can follow Jesus. His life demonstrated that he is the son of God who died in your place. That death was accepted by God the Father and all you must do is put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him. And if you haven't, I cannot imagine today why you have not. And if you tarry, if you wait, I cannot imagine what you are waiting for. He has done everything that you need to be right with God. Friend, the testimony of Jesus is clear. It's undebatable. It's undeniable. He is who he says he is. Do you agree with that? Are you in alignment with that? Are you willing to follow him? I'm going to ask that you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. Our counselors are coming forward. You know, when we talk about Jesus, it's very important for us to give an invitation for you to respond to him. Because Jesus didn't live this life to be ignored. He did not live this life. He didn't go through these trials just to satisfy those who would not accept him. Jesus went through this to demonstrate to those of you who would believe him that he is believable that he is capable, that he loves you. And over these next few moments, let me just say this. This is an optimum time for you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Three ways you can do that today. At the end of our service, after I pray, I encourage you to come forward and have a one-on-one conversation with someone here at the front. They're here, they're trained, they understand the scripture. They would love to pray for you. They would love to answer your questions, but do not walk away without getting those questions answered today. I would also say, secondly, that if, if, you're, if you feel intimidated to do that, there's another way you can respond. And that is, you can text us. There's a number that we'll place on the screen, and that number will allow you to text us and just write in the word talk on the timeline of that text. I believe it's in your worship guide as well. And as you just write in there, talk, T-A-L-K, we'll respond to you and we'll be able to have that conversation. I will be in the, in the uh, guest reception room in just a few moments. That, the center of our exit doors as you exit go across the hallway. I would love to talk to you about your faith in Christ today. Listen, he is who he said he is. Today, trust him. Complete your faith by placing it completely in him. Would you stand with me? 
Father, in Jesus' name, as we pray today, as we conclude this service, I know this is not the end of the conviction that people may have in their hearts today. And there are those that are wavering on the line. They're not sure if they've ever really trust their, trusted you and put their faith in you or not. They're wondering whether their faith is real. They wonder whether there's really any power as a result of their placing their faith in you at some point past. And Father, today I pray that you'll help them have clarity about where they stand with you. And if they have questions, let them get those questions answered. But that they may leave today knowing you. That's so important. That's what I'm asking for. So Father, today I, I would ask you, bring us to the place of decision so that we can truly follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.